right. Welcome to podcast 10 of the actual astronomy podcast podcast. Uh, this episode, we're going to talk about new telescope in a gear talk. And what we'll do is uh, Shane's going to talk uh, first about uh, getting his new telescope, which is always really exciting. And then uh, Chris, that's me. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. So uh, <laughs> without, uh, without further ado, uh, hey, it was great seeing you yesterday. You know, the, what was that about seven seconds at your door? Uh, seven from, seconds, not know. quite at my door. We were, yeah. we were keeping like that six to 10 feet distance there. So very yeah. safe. Yeah. Yeah. Very safe. Abiding by all the, the rules. Felt kind of, uh, felt kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So this was a, a contact um, free pickup where, where Shane needed uh, some stuff, but, uh, actually our pandemic restrictions are, are starting to get lifted here in about, uh, I think about, uh, eight or 10 hours or so starting at midnight. Yeah. We seem to be in a unique spot in the country where, I don't know, we're, I, I think we're somewhat fortunate and just, you know, good, good practices were put into place where, you know, I, I think the spread here is fairly well contained. So I guess yeah, time I will tell. Yeah, time will tell for sure. But yeah, I think according to what I've been seeing, it's just like one case every two or three days or something like that. So, uh, you know, after two or three weeks of this, they're, they're going to try to open a few things back up and hopefully everybody continues to abide by all these these rules, including amateur astronomers like us who are who are trying to get their telescopes up and running. <laughs> that is right, yes. So, hey, and by the way, thanks so much for all your hard work on uh, on the podcast. You know, this, this podcast was, was your... Uh, your idea and uh, you put a lot of work into getting uh, all the feeds up and getting them synced. Um, and we do these podcasts and sets. So we do one kind of where we talk about gear or equipment and like what we're, what we're doing in our own astronomy, uh, what we're observing. And then out of that, we kind of take a look at what we're, uh, you know, what we're focusing on in, in those more casual unscripted uh, uh, discussions. And then, uh, then we try to pull something out, maybe uh, that people could learn some, something from and then do a podcast on that. So uh, yeah, maybe if you don't understand something in this this type of episode, then uh, then there's those ones for people to kind of build your knowledge. So, oh, hey, by the yeah. way, I heard from Mike this week. Oh, okay. And he's been observing Venus. So Mike okay. is uh, one of our observing uh, partners. Uh, I was going to say friends, but like when you're observing with people, it, it is like a different relationship for sure than just being friends. Because when you're going out into the places that we're going, um, you know, your friends might leave you behind, but you know, <laughs> but you, you guys have treated my burns and scrapes and, you know, uh, somebody who's helping Mike change tires on his, uh, on his, uh, trailer last year at a remote site. So, but he was saying that he thinks Venus looks like a giant silver banana through his Takahashi FS 78. That's a fairly accurate description. <laughs> so, and, and building on that chain, has your observing been as fruitful? Oh, <laughs> well, um, yeah, so I, I received my new telescope, uh, the Takahashi uh, FC 76 DCU. And this is a, what kind of telescope again? This is a refractor, um, a, a pochromatic doublet. Yeah. Uh, what Which else can I say? It's color free and it comes with dollar signs both inside and out. <laughs> yes, uh, focal length 570 millimeters. So it's not what we would consider a fast telescope of shorter focal lengths, but it's certainly not a slow telescope. Like, you know, uh, F10 would be slow and an F5 would be fast. So I'm kind of right in the middle of that. 
Yeah, so with a 10 millimeter eyepiece, you would get uh, 57 magnification or 57X as it's often written. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. yeah, so I have to thank you for lending me some gear last night to allow me to use this new telescope. Don't, don't um, worry, I, I have my favor coming. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, so last night was first light with the telescope. And I was quite pleased with the performance and, and really pleased is a bit of an understatement. Oh yeah. So you gotta, you gotta tell me, so we haven't, you, you sent me a photo of it, of it set up after you did the, the pickup of the extender and the clamshell cause your telescope um, didn't, didn't come with rings to, to mount it for the, uh, to the mount. Um, and then I also own the extender, which can take this telescope into a 570 millimeter focal length and turn it into about a, 950 so you go from f seven and a half to like around f 12.5 or 12.6 or something so did you run it which focal length did you run it did you run it in the seven and a half or did you run it in the 12 and a half 12 and a half yeah i put the extender in and uh, ran it like that the whole course of my session wow that is amazing so how are the views um well let me start off by saying the seeing uh wasn't great so again seeing is uh kind of the condition of the atmosphere that we're looking through and when the atmosphere isn't stable it does um it does impact the view um so with that being said though i was still really uh blown away um i started with venus um and uh progressed to the moon essentially that was kind of it i did do some star tests as well you know a star test is a good thing to do uh, with any new telescope. Um, how did, how did the, uh, so what you look for is you kind of look for these concentric rings in an out-of-focus star. And uh, it's sort of ideal. You almost want to, almost want it to look like uh, like a sliced onion is kind of what I think about. Yeah, that's a great description. Yeah, you want to see a bunch of rings that are all sort of symmetrical. And, yeah. And uh, all all aligned, like, like a bullseye in a way, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. And I mean, really what it comes down to is that like anything that looks really strange uh, is typically not so good in most situations. So there's a few telescopes that do star test, star test oddly. Um, but how did the star test look in yours? Did you get some nice circular rings? Yeah, yeah, beautiful concentric circular rings. Um, yeah, yeah, no issues. It, it's the most perfect star test that I've seen through any of any telescope that I've attempted it with. Yeah, my 60 is like same. Like it's it's so good. It's just like magic. Like mm -hmm. how good these little Takahashi's are. These these are the type of little telescopes that people say that they outperform larger telescopes. And I've had lots of little refractors before, and you know certainly these ones are in are in that class that really make you um, you know just astounded at what a little telescope can show. So so what eyepieces were you using on this last night? Uh, so I started off with my twenty four millimeter Teleview Panoptic. Um, which gives you the widest field of view in an inch and a quarter eyepiece. Um, so just to see what the field of view was like uh, in this telescope. And then it, it's a nice finder eyepiece. It makes it a lot easier to just locate a planet in the sky because you get about a three degree field of view with that eyepiece and telescope. Uh, but from there, I progressed onto uh, orthoscopic eyepieces of, uh, of an older vintage, uh, the 0.965 inch size orthoscopics. And uh, I, I've varied my focal lengths from 25 millimeter down to, well, actually 2.8 millimeter. Oh, wow. And uh, really kind of pushed the, the telescope and just 
you know, seeing what it could do at, at various magnifications. So what, what magnification? And so you started with Venus, I think you said. So what magnification um, seemed to work best last evening? Um, best magnification was around 100. Like I had a nine millimeter eyepiece. So let me just do the quick math on that. That would give me 107.6 times. Yeah. Um, that was about the best. And even that was probably pushing it a little bit. Because like I mentioned earlier, the seeing wasn't that great. And when the seeing isn't great, usually all magnification does is amplify the, the kind of the nastiness in the atmosphere. Yeah. And I kind of find that, uh, you know, there are an awful lot of nights. And I think I even wrote you an email about this recently, like when we were talking about powers and what I thought would be sort of a magical eyepiece for that telescope, depending on your setup. And, you know, really around that 120, you know, somewhere between 100 and 120, most nights that are going to be any good at all. Um, you should be able to hit about 100 to 120. And, and, you know, last night I think was, was, uh, kind of like a mediocre seeing night. I didn't, I didn't set up for a few reasons, not the least of which is that you took half my equipment. No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, you, you had nothing left. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Hey, what did you think of the, the clamshell? Cause we had this long, long chat about whether you would get uh, rings for your, your refractor, or whether you would get a, one of the Takahashi clamshells to attach it to the mount. I loved it. I absolutely. Oh, loved you did. It. Okay, good. Yeah, my biggest concern was vibration. Um, I'm extremely sensitive to vibration when I'm looking through a telescope. Yeah. And when it drives me crazy is when I'm trying to focus an eyepiece. If if it's vibrating like crazy as soon as you touch the focusing knob, it makes it really challenging to get a nice crisp focus. Yeah. Um, and even when I put that 2.8 millimeter eyepiece in there, which gave me 346 times magnification. I was still able to focus it without vibrating. Uh, well, there was a little bit of movement, but it was very easy to overcome. And I was really impressed and I'll say a little shocked actually at how stable that clamshell kept the telescope. So yeah. well, I it's, loved it. It's solid. I mean, I'll, I'll give it that. It's, it's heavy. Like, yeah. yeah especially on my 60. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, that worked out really well. Um, so I spent a little bit of the... Uh, well, I was out at twilight, so, you know, it was still pretty bright out and started with Venus. Um, then I went to the moon and then I came back to Venus when it was darker just to see how things looked with, um, you know, blacker sky behind it. Mm. Um, you know, the, the image scale really stood out. Um, you and I have been doing a lot of Venus observing lately with 60 millimeter telescopes. Um, now going from a 60 millimeter to a 76 millimeter doesn't sound like a lot on paper, but it really does add an awful lot of surface area and overall diameter to your telescope, which increases how big things appear like planets. Yeah. So the image scale right away stood out like Venus looked considerably larger than what I've been used to the last uh, month or so. Um, but the seeing really diminished a lot of my ability to pull in some detail. Although, you know, we've talked a lot recently about the cloud observations that we've had. I was able to make out some darkness um, in between the limb and the terminator. So the limb is kind of the edge of the, the, the outer edge of the planet. And then the terminator is where the light turns into darkness. Yeah. Um, so I was able to make out a little bit of darkness in that V formation in the clouds, Yep. but it was fleeting. Um, and it, you know, it didn't pop out to me as much as it has on some other nights that we've had where the seeing was better. Oh, well, keep, keep in mind too, um, that as, as it becomes more and more of a crescent, um, those, those type of details are more difficult to discern. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's a good point. That, that, yeah. that is just a little bit of the nature. Now, some of it might have been the scene, but but certainly I noticed since the uh, the mid to end of March, you know, in, in March, gee, uh, March 24th or whatever it was, I sent my telescope out and I could just see clouds on the surface or on the tops of uh, of the cloud decks of Venus. But uh, but then by by the end of end of April and the last time I went out, I, I could see a little, but you know, it really wasn't wasn't very much. So after about a month, it you know it really has has become more and more difficult. So here in the next few days, like these are going to be the last chance to really have much of a view. Of course, you're getting getting that beautiful uh, banana shaped uh, silver crescent, as Mike put it. So yeah, I you know I think, and this is really hard for me to say confidently because of how the seeing you know again wasn't that great, but in those darker areas during the brief moments where the seeing would stabilize just for like a millisecond. Um, I felt like I was able to see some, a couple little bright dots in that dark area. Really? Um, yeah. Now again, like it only seemed to pop a couple of times and because the seeing was questionable, maybe it was just a aberration of the, of the atmosphere essentially. I, it's hard to say, but, um, yeah, I it's was intrigued. Yeah, it's it's really weird though, and this is, um, I, I believe, in a way you're referring to is is what's commonly uh, spoken about as the ashen light of Venus, which is the uh, illumination or partial illumination of the of the dark side. Um, well, so, sorry, just to maybe clarify, it wasn't on the dark side. Oh. It was just on the darker part of the illuminated side, like kind oh. of where that V shape is, you know? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, those those bright spots. I mean, those are for sure. Like I've like I've drawn those and like I've drawn those recently and other people in other parts of, of the world and North America and that they've drawn them at roughly the same time. And I've noticed they matched up perfectly. And there's, there's, you know, unless it's some, some sort of common illusion um, it seems like for sure. And then I saw there was one day there was some sort of uh, really good image, whether it was from a mountain hub observatory or, or spacecraft or something. I don't know. I'm not really keeping up with the space sciences these days, but um, I did see one and it did match up with, with what I was seeing as well. So it, it seems like that if you are seeing those, then I'm pretty confident. I'd be more confident than not. Maybe it's the way to put it that that's what you're seeing. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that stood out for me when I was looking at Venus is the lack of false color in the telescope. So, you know, using a refractor telescope, one of the complaints that people have, especially uh, with faster telescopes or with achromatic telescopes, is that when you're looking at a very bright object, uh, there will be false color that the telescope optics introduce, whether it's a yellowish tinge or sometimes it's purplish. Um, I didn't really notice any of that. There was, there was just a little bit of color around Venus. But even that, I, I don't know if that was really color or just some flaring in the eyepiece. You know, it was kind of, it was hard to say for sure, but I, I was really impressed with that aspect of it too. Yeah. And I mean, you know, there's, there's a variety of different things that can introduce color. You know, you will, you will never get a hundred percent color free, no matter what type of telescope or eyepiece or whatever you're using. Like if you're a decent observer, you're always going to detect some color because your eye is not uh, perfectly apochromatic. Your eye is, is just really a singlet, you know? So yeah, yeah. your eye itself will introduce some uh, spurious color. Um, and and that will be very minimal, but, but you may detect it. I feel like I can actually detect color in 
my eye um, and especially wearing glasses like I'm a glasses yeah. wearer and I've never had a pair of glasses I have a pair of Zeiss glasses um, that I will wear from time to time um, when I'm doing planetary observing um, and for the most part those are color free but like my regular everyday glasses um, I can see secondary like color and I guess maybe we should describe what is the secondary color kind of what does it look like Shane? Well for me like when i'm when i see it say on the moon or a bright object it's it's a yellow tinge mm. around kind of the the usually the edge of it or yeah. in brighter craters that type of thing you can see it sometimes yeah and like sort of true in what we think of as like an achromatic or not a fully color corrected optic whether it's my glasses or a telescope you'll often see like even like a red or a blue fringe like i once got a pair of eyeglasses that were so bad for this that i had to take them back because everything i looked at like my white railings and the house and everything just had a fringe like whether it was red or or blue you know on one side it was red and on one side it was blue and just the uh, uh the correction on it was too poor so i had to go up in there's like this this index, this Abbey index that they use, and they had to go and get me a, a better a better Abbey number. <laughs> so, wow, yeah, well, that's cool. That's cool that it's uh, it's giving such nice images. And you said you just kept the uh, the extender in the whole night, eh? Yeah, yeah, the whole night I kept it in, um, and then I moved on to the moon later in the night. So Venus was already you know, it's starting to get a little lower every night, I believe. And the lower things are in the sky, the more atmosphere you look through, and typically the worse seeing you encounter. Yeah. The moon was much higher. And I felt like the seeing was certainly better in that part of the sky. Yep. And wow, I, you know, the, the moon is always incredible to me for how much detail it can show you. But I feel like last night um, was the most impressive lunar session I've ever had. And uh, I don't know if it was just kind of, I'm in the honeymoon phase with a new <laughs> telescope that I'm, you know, wanting to see amazing detail, but the stuff that I saw um, just popped, you know, like I'm sure it's there in other telescopes, but it just was so crisp and was so easy to observe last night. I couldn't believe it. And then I mentioned earlier, like I went all the way from 25 millimeter focal length eyepiece down to 2.8 millimeter. And the image did not break down, you know, at 2.8 millimeter, 346 times magnification. Um, it was still a really nice image that was, uh, very observable and showed a whole lot of, uh, detail. Um, like at, at that magnification, it almost felt like I was flying over the surface of the moon, you know, seeing the shadows from some of the mountains, uh, seeing, real uh, gentle topographic changes, you know, in elevation. Um, oh, I could go on. <laughs> it was really a, an incredible view. Yeah, I mean, I got to admit, though, I've, I've had my uh, little tack now for, I think, three or four years. And uh, it, the images through that, they are just astounding. And like many times, like I'm out with it. And, I, and again, just like you were experiencing last night, and it's, you know, it's why I've also, as I'm sure we'll get to recently bought another one, um, just been astounded. You know, we were, my wife and I are looking at the moon uh, last week, uh, or I guess very early this week. Uh, anyway, um, about seven days ago. And uh, boy, like I was looking, I said, hey, like you gotta, you know, check this out. It kind of looks like somebody's just like taken like clay and made like this beautiful like fine scale like it was 
it was that sharp and detailed. It just looked like you, you could reach out and touch it. And she was like, Oh, come on. Like, let me have a look, like whatever. Like this, this sounds like hyperbole to me. And she looked and she said, yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what it looks like. It looks like it's just right there. It's just hard to believe it's, uh, you know, way up in our sky. And, you know, typically something you just kind of glance at and you're like, Oh yeah, there's the moon or whatever. But, you know, when we were looking at it through the little Takahashi, it just, just, just performs, you know? Yeah, totally. And you know, the thing too, for folks that have never looked at the moon uh, through a telescope or even binoculars, you don't even need high power to really see a lot of this stunning detail. Like um, when I was looking at it at 25 millimeter uh, focal length, so that's about 38 times. I was like, again, the detail was just out of this, like outstanding. And um, even like a 10 by 50 binocular, uh, you'll start to see some crater detail and, and uh, it really turns into, you know, an image that you're used to in a photograph <laughs> rather than just what you see naked eye in the sky. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was kind of my rocket sled tour through my observing session last night. So uh, did you get up and do any, uh, did you have a look at any of the planets in the morning sky? No, no, I, I didn't. Um, in fact, my session last night wasn't all that long. The night before, I didn't really get much sleep. Uh, my dog was keeping me up and, and uh, I was pretty tired last night. Yeah. And, you know, you and I both, I think, have kind of a similar approach to this stuff that if you're tired, just don't push it because yeah. that's when you drop eyepieces or make mistakes. So grab you know, Grab your stove with your bare hand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I, you know, I think I was out from about eight thirty till ten last night. Well, that's and, a good. That's uh, a good yeah, it wasn't bad. I, you know, I really wanted to stay, you know, stay up later and and look at some clusters and double stars, but I just didn't have it in me. And and then to wake up early, um, you know, the forecast wasn't looking great last night either. Like it was a little breezy, I think. So. Yeah, well, I'm glad that you're able to uh, to get some views there. Like I kind of thought like I probably won't be going out um, last night anyway, for whatever reason. But I uh, I thought it would be great if, if you could at least get a session in. And even if that meant that I wouldn't be able to use use that uh, that particular uh, uh, Takahashi's telescope. So, yeah, that's cool. So do you think you're going to, you, you know, and here's the thing with that extender is, I actually don't think it's worthwhile for us both to own one. So we should just use that one and then just spare it off <laughs> because yeah, I guess that's an idea. It is like, I think what you'll find after a while, like you should try it with and without. And I think you're going to find, like we discussed the other day um, over text that uh, boy, you, uh, you have to be using the right eyepieces for that really to work the way it's designed. But as soon as you introduce too much into your optical system, you, you might as well just not be using it. It, it just, it's something where you need to be using just the right eyepieces at just the right powers or else you're just, you're just making life more difficult for yourself by using it. I, I think anyway. So. Well, one thing I did notice is like when you do a star test. Um, so again, you're, you're racking the, the focuser out of focus and looking at the circles around the, the bright star is um, you know, I, I took that telescope out at about five o'clock. Uh, with the extender in. And then I started observing around 8.30. So the reason I did that was because you want your optics to be the same temperature as the outside air. If it's not, if your telescope is warmer, you're going to, you're going to introduce bad seeing 
within your telescope, essentially. The image won't be crisp. But when you do the star test, you're able to tell a little bit if that telescope is thermally acclimated to the outside air. And even at 830, um, it really wasn't fully acclimated because the temperatures were dropping and the telescope was having a hard time keeping up with that. Yeah, I think. And, and I think that's because of the extender I think you know, adding is, that much glass. Yeah, like I, I think it is too, because I was, uh, the last time I was out with it, like I said, I think it was last Sunday or maybe Monday. Anyway, I, uh, I did f go back and forth between the extender and not, which is kind of a pain because this thing, you know, I think the way to describe it is it kind of sounds like a Barlow because it magnifies the image 1.7 uh, times. Um, but it's, it's a little bit, uh, well, it's modular and you're integrating it. So a Barlow is a device that sits uh, typically, although not always, in your, in your diagonal or in your eyepiece holder, and then you put your eyepiece into that, and it provides some sort of, typically most Barlows run at, at 2x magnification, but this thing actually threads in between, somewhere between the focuser itself and the objective lens. Um, and it's got, I think it's got two or four pieces of glass in it. I, I can't remember, but I think, I think it's two cause it turns a, yeah. the doublet into a, a quad okay, that's right. arrangement. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so this actually, uh, not only magnifies, but it, it's designed to work. It was originally designed to work with the, the 60 millimeter optics that I have. Uh, but then it was almost like coincidental that it, it was also going to work with the 76. And from what I've read, it actually works better with the 76. Um, in that it actually provides even additional uh, like field flattening. So you get this perfectly flat field, whereas most refractors will, will have some, some field curvature. But uh, yeah, but it's, it's an expensive piece. I don't know what they're running now, but I think, I think they were around 500 American dollars, um, something like that. But like for me, I only use it when I'm teaching my class or if I'm doing some planetary observing like around the house. And then it's, uh, for the most part, I'm just running it in the F6 mode. Right. So, yeah. 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 My next test will be without it. Um, just to see what the 76 does kind of in its native focal length. Yeah. Yeah. And you should try, try those same eyepieces and then try your, whatever wide fields, um, you might have, or like, I know you have the Leica zoom and that's, that's the one that I'd be most curious about because for example, with my, with my Pentax eyepieces, um, one of them in order to, to hit around a hundred power, I've got a Barlow and I've got a good, I've got a couple of good Barlows, but when I Barlow it, just that additional bit of glass, um, when I'm running it in the F10 mode, gives me way more chromatic aberration than, uh, than without the extender and, uh, and running without the Barlow. <laughs> but using a higher power Pentax eyepiece. So I'm just like, what am I doing with this thing? I'm turning a really little portable telescope into, well, it's still pretty portable, but it's, it's a little bit longer. And, you know, uh, I'm just, just not really sure like what I'm actually doing at that point. So mm, yeah, yeah, I'm not really sure the, but I think there are some situations, um, you know, where it's, where it's beneficial, but they're, they're, yeah, it's kind of a keyhole thing. So like I said, I, I don't know that it's worth us both owning that particular piece of equipment. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, I need to spend some more time with the whole setup and, and get used to it. But I tell you, I loved it. And one thing we talked about on one of the earlier podcasts was whether or not I'd replace the focuser on the Takahashi. Yeah. Um, because it's a single speed focuser. And in some people's opinion, it's the weakest part of the telescope. And in fact, it drives some people crazy because, you know, for what the telescope actually costs, you would think it would come with a high end dual speed focuser. Yeah. I'm not um, a fan. Yeah. 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 Um, so the diagonal that I was using is a, uh, it's a beta prism and the eyepiece holder has a little helical focuser on it, meaning you just, you basically rotate the eyepiece and it has, I think it has maybe a centimeter of travel. Um, so not a lot, but if you kind of keep it in the middle, it really is a, a it, it works exceptionally well as a fine focusing sort of addition to your telescope. So, you know, between the diagonal and the the stock focuser that was on there, you know, again, I was able to get by even at the extreme magnifications that I, I pushed it to. So yeah, that was interesting. Uh, I can't really make a decision or judge the whole package on an hour and a half. So observing, but uh, you know, it's a super promising start. Yeah. I think actually I'm going to use one of mine. So maybe, maybe I should say this. I was going to buy the 76 millimeter that you bought. Um, and you know that as well. And I, I, I know we talked about it quite a bit. So I, I think I, I sent you a bit of a surprise this week, eh? Yes, I, I was not expecting that picture. Why don't, why don't you tell everybody what arrived at your doorstep? Yeah, so I get the 100 millimeter or the four inch uh, version of, of the, the Takahashi D-series. So, um, but this is the uh, DC, it's the smaller one with the 1.25 inch focuser. And we had we had talked about this. I can't remember we talked about it in the podcast or, or whether we were just talking. And the the downside of that telescope, if if there is one, at least for me, is that it would li- really limit you to 1.25 inch eyepieces. And you can get a two inch adapter, but then I found out that the opening on that really isn't not probably not quite large enough to give you like that full light cone. So you might get some little bit of vignetting or like it's kind of kind of give you some distortion in the in the edge of the field and when you're talking about these kind of telescopes you you don't want to be introducing like optical aberrations and errors so but then i found out that that you can actually um use any of your components from the from the 60 or the 76 with the 100 as well i kind of knew you sort of could but it's a pretty big gamble and and quite a bit of money um, if you can't find someone that, that hasn't ventured there before you. So I knew theoretically it should work, but then just as I had the 76 millimeter in my shopping cart um, and had already sort of made some arrangements with the, with the distributor, I just hadn't sort of pressed the buy button on it. Um, I found out that a hundred percent that that uh, focuser from my, from my 60 millimeter that I had custom made um, would work in the, in the hundred. So I just went, you know what? I'm just gonna go with the 100 right now. And then that way, like, we're also not duplicating our equipment. Like I, I really was keen to get the 76 because I have the extender. But if you were getting that anyway, like eventually once we get out of the lockdown situation, I'm sure I'll be able to get lots of views. So I'll have, we'll have the 60, I have the 60 of the 76. And between those two, we have four different configurations. And then with this um, kind of gives you that, that uh, larger 100 millimeter, uh, uh, size and, and image scale as well. But um, so this thing arrived this week 
And then uh, what I had to do is, is uh, unthread the focuser on that that came with it. Cause as I said, I'm not as big a fan of the tack focusers anyway. This one has the one and a quarter. I want it to go to two inch. So I, we had to unthread that. That was a little bit dicey because they put like a drop of glue or something, some sort of bonding agent in it. Yeah. Thread lock just to and, keep it from moving really. Right. So of course we had to break that and, Actually, my wife is, she has really unusually like strong hands. So she actually did it. And I'm like reluctant to put that much force on a brand new telescope that just arrived, but she doesn't know what she's handling there as much as I do. So, so she just kind of broke it and then we unthreaded it. And then um, I had a heck of a job. So I took the two inch feather touch off of the 60 and I could not get that threaded onto the hundred. And so now I've got the old focuser off or the focuser off the hundred. I know I can thread that back on, but what I ended up doing is I didn't want to like get any kind of metal filings or paint chips if it just wasn't going to fit. And I just didn't want to mess around with it any longer than like 30 seconds. So I actually end up threading on the hundred millimeter um, focuser, which I knew should be compatible back with the 60 onto the 60 to make sure that that exact one would thread on there. And then I took my finger and I just kind of ran it over that, uh, that spot where it had that, uh, that Loctite or whatever it was. And I don't know whether that was it or what, but as soon as I just like rotated, it just rotated back in. I was able to kind of thread it, uh, thread it on there. So anyway, so I have the, uh, the two inch feather touch, uh, uh, put right onto that, uh, that Takahashi 100 right now, which is kind of the setup I wanted. Now, I don't know, there might still be some vignetting, but, I know that it has like the full size capability um, being a two inch focuser and I'm not, I'm not losing uh, 10 millimeters or so somewhere there, although the optical path on it seems to be, uh, seems to be fairly long. So it might not matter one way or the other, but I do like the feather touch focusers anyway. So uh, I still get to have some of that, some of that wide field stuff going on, but man, the telescope scene is so light for a four inch. Yeah, I, you know, and same observation with the 76. And we, I think in society, at least North American society, we, we, I think we associate quality with kind of heavier objects. You know, if it has weight to it, we think it's built better, built stronger. And when I lifted my telescope for the first time, it almost felt like a toy for how light it was. You know, I've had uh, an 80 millimeter William Optics Zenith Star 2, uh, oh gee, maybe 10 years ago. And basically the same telescope in terms of aperture and focal length as this new Takahashi, but the William optics probably weighed at least twice, maybe edging towards three times as much as this Takahashi. Yeah. 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 And, it's and incredible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's just wild. Like I know the 60 weighs almost nothing. Like I travel with the 60 frequently, like, and it's, there's almost like no excuse not to take the 60 because um, it's so small and light that I can just, uh, it just disappears into the luggage. Um, the only, the only, the biggest hassle with it is that, uh, that clamshell, but, oh, well. mm-hmm. uh, but the four inch, um, it says, although in the manual, it says it's 2.8 kilograms, which translates to 6.1 pounds. It's not that heavy. It actually, there, there's a miscalculation. And if you actually read the fine print, it says it's 5.6 pounds. And then by switching out to the lightweight feather touch, I think I shave off about another 0.2 pounds or so. So I get it down to 5.3 pounds, which is, which is lighter than 
any of the uh, 80 millimeter uh, refractors that are that are out and around there. And it's only I think just a smidge heavier with my uh, than my ST80 with the uh, with the two inch and and some of the other modifications that I made to that, which does make it a little bit heavier. But um, it's it's in that same weight class as my ST80, which is just so unbelievable so why would anybody care about having a light telescope versus a heavy telescope chris yeah so easier to mount mm -hmm. that's like number one and then uh super portable like the telescope that you use the most is the best telescope and you know by having these really lightweight optics um it allows you to go out also as you were you know mentioning before quicker cool down yep, yep. you know the uh the ability to have a telescope that's you know, several pounds lighter than another means really fast cool down. In fact, from my understanding, they're even from your telescope, which I think is like in the four pound class, my three inch, my 60 millimeter, my 60 millimeter, which is a 2.4 inch, um, it cools down about 15 minutes or so. I think your 76 is reportedly uh, something that cools down in about 20 minutes. So I think it adds like a pretty marginal uh, length of time on to the cool down. But then with the with the hundred mil, you add about another ten or twelve minutes onto that even. So, um, and that's at these weights. But if you had um, even a just a slightly heavier refractor, for example, my five inch really is about a ten pound telescope. Say maybe you know it's it's in that ballpark, um, which is a really light five inch. There's often a lot of nights where I just in the winter, especially, I, I never get a cool before I get too cold. Um, it's really about an hour long cool down once uh, once you kind of get up into the uh, into the lower double digits of weight. So, you know, it makes, makes a pretty big difference. Yeah, it does. And, you know, another thing that I like about lighter telescopes is you mentioned it already, you don't need as substantial of a mount or tripod. Right. And all of this stuff adds up, you know, a, a tripod of of good quality can easily weigh 10 to 20 pounds. A mount head can weigh the same amount. So another 10 or 20 pounds. And not that it's a lot of weight, but when you're backyard observing in particular, you're often moving the telescope, the whole thing, mount tripod telescope, you're moving it around your backyard to see around trees or in between houses, uh, depending on the object you're looking at. So it is nice just to have a lighter weight rig just to pick up and move to the other side of the yard if you have to. Yeah. And for example, you know, really once, you know, and it's, it's at night too, and it almost feels like you have to double the weight of everything at night. Like it's pretty surprising, like how easy it is to kind of tool around the, uh, the 60 millimeter F10, which is coming in at like three and a half pounds or whatever it is. It's just nothing in the day, but like at night when you're trying to get it seated in the mount and blah, 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 like it's taking you three or four times longer because you're half asleep and all this stuff, even that can seem like, oh, like this is starting to feel like a struggle at 4 a.m. like it was the other morning when I was setting up, you know, it just, it's just one of those things. But, and, you know, every pound you add on is like, you know, 10 more nights a year, you're not going out to do it. Like, I just know that from, from experience. You have to, you have to, and I really want to do this as you know, but uh, yeah. So, but I think having the, the 60 millimeter, that is like the almost no excuse uh, use uh, case. And with that telescope, with the 60, with everything, with the mount, eyepieces, diagonal, um, without the extender, and with my smallest tripod, um, the whole deal weighs, I think, 11 or 12 pounds. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, which is just like, I mean, you, you it's not grab and go. You can grab and run a marathon with it. I mean, you know, 
it really, really is that portable. So that's, that's about, I think, as portable as you can get. I don't think there's, there's anything else out there that's as portable as that setup, with maybe the exception of some of the uh, Borg instruments. But um, my 100 millimeter that I have here now is just coming slightly less than the Borg 107 millimeter. So um, these Takahashi certainly even give uh, the Borgs a run for the money. So, you know, you're really down to uh, a game of ounces and grams um, if you're trying to run any sort of any sort of comparison between the two, but uh, yeah, but that's that's just uh, how they had them set up. But the balance on this is is really nice. So I also, unfortunately, like you, don't have two brings because for whatever reason, it seems really strange, but um, they've really cut back on two bring manufacturing in recent years. I, I don't know, like that seems like an odd thing to say, but. Um, it seems so hard to find though. I, I don't understand it, especially for the, the size that I want and that you want. Um, there, there's not a lot of options out there. Yeah, well, I would have thought 80 millimeter, like you're looking for 80 millimeter rings, I believe. And yes. I, I would have thought those would be super common. But it turns out like the real common ones are the 90s, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I've got a set of 90s. And I thought when I, when I originally con was contacting you and saying, hey, just, just come get this. You can give your scope a try. I thought, well, I can probably get my 90 millimeter rings working for him because I have uh, the same tube size with my 60 and I have the 90 rings. But it's no, it's just not going to be, it's not going to be safe. And you don't want your, you know, your brand new telescope making a big unplanned trip to the, to the ground. Um, and that's, you know, what it comes down to it has to be, has to be safe and secure. So I did actually order rings with mine. Um, and so I was going to get the Prima Lucha labs, which I know you don't care for as much. So, you know, we'll, we'll just sort of leave that one rest, but um <laughs> I, I do. I, I like them. I think they're neat, but um, they were closed down apparently. So, so the vendor um, had tried to get them and just hadn't heard anything. And it's been a number of weeks now. Um, so I was able to find um, a pair on sale. Um, not quite exactly what I was going to get. So anyway, you'll, you'll see when they arrive. Um, but yeah, not exactly what I was, what I was hoping to get originally, but it's fine. They're on sale. So, um, and in the dark, you know, it doesn't, uh, doesn't really make a difference. So, yeah. So, yeah. so when, when's the first light for yours, do you think? Once the rings come. So, so, so a couple of weeks probably. Yeah, probably yeah. is going to be like a couple of rings. Of course, like everything is landing here super fast. You know, I've been, you know, and usually we don't even, but we should be, we should be running like an unboxing channel on YouTube or something. We'd like <laughs> never buy stuff. And now we're getting all this stuff. Yeah. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, I ordered a Celestron a Mars filter because I thought those were out of production when it came up on Amazon. And so I snatched it up and they said, oh, it'll be here in like two or three weeks or whatever. I thought, well, like, I don't care. I just like prepping for the Mars opposition in October. And of course it was here in four days. So oh, wow. I'm, I'm guessing though, that I'm not going to be as lucky with the rings. I certainly haven't been lucky with the rings uh, thus far. So, but I felt kind of bad because I, I sort of had worked them into a deal with Stefan and uh, anyway, uh, that, that's our vendor. And, <laughs> and I had to write him and say, well, like I got to test this thing out. I want to try the scope. So, um, you know, I'm just going to buy another pair of rings somewhere, somewhere else. So, so those are coming. Yeah. So that's unfortunate, but, uh, but whatever. So I was able to get out with the Lumicon diagonal and the multiple filter selector. And I was able to test that in 60. Okay. Uh, before I handed, uh, handed those parts off to you. And 
it does come to focus just barely with the extender in. Okay. Which doesn't really matter because, so this is a, a diagonal, which on the refractor, this is the, the part that bends light 90 degrees and put your eyepieces into it. Um, but uh, this, this particular diagonal has a big filter slide. And that filter slide allows you to put nebula filters in it. And, and I'd received it in, in error because uh, the company uh, sent uh, not the regular diagonal, but had sent this instead. Um, which is an interesting product, so I, I've decided to keep it, considering the the usual price is much more than, than what I paid. Um, but uh, typically, I think I would be using it in the f6 mode, and in the f6 mode, like everything comes to focus, no problem. Now it did focus in f10, um, and I can use it. It just I'm all the way racked in. There mm -hmm. just is like just a hair more in focus left in the in the telescope so i'm operating right at right at the limit and probably you know i probably could use it if i got like a oh what do you call them like i think it's like a low riser adapter i think you can get an, a two or a, a two inch to one a quarter adapter that allows your eyepieces to sit a little bit lower and probably if i get something like that it would it would even it would even satisfy all that but with the with the 60 millimeter in uh, just in the in the f6 mode like it was plenty. Like I wouldn't even have noticed the difference hardly. But uh, in the in the hundred millimeter, uh, I think it's going to be perfect because I've got too much uh, uh, in focus left there now that I've taken. I took a section out um, when when the focuser comes off. It, since it's designed for one point two five, it, it's going to put the image back away. So um, you know, since this eats up that space plus another ten mils, I think that. I think that it should be it should be good, but with all these parts, I think uh, that's really not going to be a problem. So I'm not I'm not as worried about the fact that uh, you know that I put that focuser on on that telescope. So, but you were asking me something when so I, I now have actually three Lumicon diagonals, just the way this all worked out. <laughs> so wow. so I have my original. I forget. I think it was called like a Mag. It's not a Max Bright, but it's something like that. It's like they're they're branded whatever the Lumicon brand for their most uh, reflective 90% is my original one from 2005 or 2006 or whatever it is. I have that one. Um, so now that's about, it, it's, it's not that old, it's 13 years old. So I must've got it in 08 or something like that. Anyway, 07. Um, so I have that one. I have a brand new 95% reflectivity one, which is the standard. And then I have a brand new, uh, 98% reflectivity one. So, cause you were, you know, and, and it's always the debate, could you actually see the difference? And you, you would ask me a question about going from the old one to the new one. What, what were you wondering about? And do you care to share your theory, uh, on what you were predicting? Well, so on cloudy nights, I've read from a number of, uh, uh observers that, Diagonals are in a way disposable equipment that over a period of time, and we're not talking a couple of years, like, you know, a decade or more, um, that the coatings or the mirror deteriorates over that period of time and the reflectivity may drop from say 95% to somewhere in the 80s. And uh, some observers have reported, uh, you know, kind of shock and awe when they replace an old diagonal with a new one, um, they can't believe how much brighter it is. And I've always been curious whether or not, you know, that's um, something we would notice or something that you could notice with uh, your old diagonal versus the new one. So 
I did run the comparison between my old 98% and the new 95% because I thought then that one doesn't even have like whatever it is, 3%, right? You know, which I think should be invisible to the eye anyway, right? Agreed, yeah. So I'm kind of giving it a bit of a disadvantage on the new one anyway. And for sure, 100%, I could see a difference. It was... It was not like, I'm not going to say it's night and day, but there was a dramatic difference. Like uh, my wife could notice it. The, and the new one was brighter is what? The new one, was. yeah. The yeah, new one yeah. was significantly better. Um, surprisingly so. I was, I was surprised. So the whole reason, you kind of led me down this path anyway. Um, in, in, and you might not know this, but I think you had bought a pretty good diagonal a couple of years ago. Anyway, we we're out at the grasslands dark site and we were looking at stuff between your 60, uh, one millimeter William optics and my 60 millimeter, uh, tech half hashi FS 60, which was brand new at the time. Uh, so I guess it was three years ago anyway. And, um, and you had a, a newer diagonal and I definitely noticed that your scope was brighter than mine. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't imagine that it was the, the Takahashi optics or anything. And I thought, and I looked at the diagonal, I thought, I, I wonder if it is like, it kind of has like some dust and I've dropped stuff in it and it's been down a million dirt roads. Like, I mean, it probably has traveled close to a million miles, I'm guessing, or something <laughs> like, 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 I'm not even kidding. Like it's traveled a lot. I've taken yeah, with, with flights too, hey? flights yeah. and yeah. all kinds of stuff. So I'm not, you know, that this isn't like a diagonal, um, that somebody has kept on a shelf, yeah, well sealed at all times, except for observing, and they observe in a, you know, in a, in a really good environment that doesn't have any pollen or dust or blah blah blah. You know, um, you know, because maybe in those situations, and I've seen people that that observe in these in these really good conditions, and I've lived in a variety of different places where you know those conditions uh, do exist. Um, you know, so in those conditions, I think, yeah, maybe those diagonals, but that's not the life of my diagonals, as you know, I mean, they're, you know, we're going on these, these trips and we're going up and down dusty roads and to the top of, I've been to the top of mountains with it. And I've been down and observed, uh, many times right at sea level with the, uh, saltwater, uh, really heavy in the air. You know I mean? Yeah, it's yeah. just like, you know, a variety of really bad conditions, um, over, over more than, than, uh, 12 years. So, um, yeah, I mean, this, this definitely, I think has, has a negative impact. If you're really going to get out there and you're going to observe, um, you know, between 100 and 200 times a year, and you're really going to be going to those dark extreme places, um, there's going to be some impact on, I think on a, on a diagonals mirror, right? It's just, yeah. I think it's just inevitable. Um, and even that, like, the, the fact that I've dropped stuff in it. And although like, it doesn't really look like it's scratched. I, I just, I, I can't imagine that it doesn't have some sort of impact on the, on the reflectivity. I've dropped some Barlow's in there or just even like you're at observing and pick an eyepiece out and a member of the public walks up and sticks their fingers in. I mean, just all kinds of stuff. Right. And like one or two times on any of this stuff, I don't think makes uh, any difference at all, but just that constant, um, you know, just constant abuse over years and years and years in the field and really observing, you know, like we're out there and we're really doing this and we're doing this, um, you know, more than a hundred times a year. So, um, yeah, I mean, maybe if somebody was doing, I know lots of people that just do, uh, astronomy 10 or 12 times a year, 
So yeah, if you were doing that, for sure, your diagonal is probably going to last you your entire life. Um, but uh, you know, it it brings up a good point too. Like uh, refractor owners or you know Cassegrain owners often focus on getting a real nice telescope, and then often often focus on getting a nice collection of eyepieces. But there's three parts to that optical path, and the middle part is that diagonal, and you're only as good as your weakest link. So it, you know, if you mentioned it kind of with the comparison with your little tack and my little William optics, um, you know, likely what we'll discover if we do another side-by-side comparison with your new diagonal is uh, we'll find out that your old diagonal was kind of holding back the performance of that fine telescope, right? So it is important to remember all three parts of that optical path when, you know, wanting to make it appear as good as it can. Yeah. Sounds good. So are you, uh, and I think, I think we're kind of ready to wrap up there. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, are you ready for the offer? You're not, not allowed to refuse. <laughs> I'm, I'm on the edge of my seat. <laughs> so, well, actually I think you'll enjoy this. I think you'll, that this isn't, um, and I think you, you won't be able to refuse it. Not, not for the, not for the meaning in, in, in that, in that gangster movie those years ago. But, uh, but I have, um, as you know, I have an ST80, which is an 80 millimeter F5 Acromat, which I've modified with a two inch focuser. And you've looked through this telescope. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I was quite surprised actually with how good it performs given the price. But anyway, carry on. And that's, yes, exactly. So it's like a $100 telescope. Um, so I've been testing it uh, a little bit in the mornings. And you were saying when you were talking about working on your classic telescopes that you kind of enjoy. Um, you know, kind of messing around with them a little bit, like to yep. get them working or I guess, I guess tinkering, not yep. messing around. That's what I do. I mess around with the instruments because I don't know what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> you actually tinker because you're, you're, you're looking at it, you're saying it has this problem and you can work towards this in goal. So this telescope actually has a stigmatic and uh, pinched optics, uh, giving, giving some pretty extreme astigmatism. So in one side of focus, you can actually see the images are stretched one way. And then when you rack through focus, you'll see that they stretch at 90 degrees to that. Okay. Okay. So what I was thinking is once you're done, kind of, you know, take your time with this um, extender and take your time with, uh, with the, uh, with the tube ring, you know, try to try to get at least a, a couple or three good nights in before we trade back. And then I can uh, provide you with the 80 and then, and then if you can take that and I think it needs to have the um, lens cap pulled off and then I think it needs to have the uh, lens cell um, pulled out and the retaining ring around that needs to be taken off. And then it needs to have like a screwdriver wrapped on the side of the, of the cell and then have the uh, retaining ring threaded back in just so it's snug. And I think that should, that should fix it according to my research online. I've kind of tried to do that. I've had some trouble, right? Um, mm-hmm. Actually getting that off. So uh, knowing that this is a $100 telescope, <laughs> I'm hoping that maybe you can, you can help resolve these pressing issues. Yeah. I don't mind taking a stab at it and uh, yeah. Yeah. I'll give it a try. See yeah. what we can do. And then I can, I can actually give you some flocking paper for your troubles as well. <laughs> Ooh, all right. <laughs> all right. Well with that, all right, that's the 10th episode and that's, Really great because in our, I think in our original um, uh, research for doing podcasts uh, again or whatever you you mentioned that, uh, that that many of them don't hit the double digit uh, numbers so we're gonna we're gonna hit at least eleven because we're gonna do another one right now so with that we're gonna thank you for listening and thanks to all the people that have been downloading really appreciate it have a good thanks, day. Chris. See all right. you.
We'll see you later. I'm going to stop this.